0: Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. And when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now... Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt.
1: Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, music team. How is everybody? blessed. We are blessed. It's good to see all your shining faces. You can't see all your shining faces, but I get to look at them. It's good to be together. We're uh, we're in Genesis, in case you forgot. We're doing a flyover. I find that this flyover, as I've said, it's a little hard for me to know how to run the throttle here. I want to stop, and you get to the story of Joseph, and I I have a hard time keeping that throttle open. I want to I wanna stall is what I want to do. But we, we, we want to keep moving and keep the general idea of flying over and not digging into every passage. That's something that can be done at a different time. But last week we touched on the life of Isaac and Rebecca. We spent most of our time with Jacob and his family. Jacob being Abraham's grandson. He was the one who carried on that covenant that we've talked about and will continue to talk about. The Abrahamic covenant is what we call it. That covenant God made with Abraham conditioned only upon God's faithfulness, not upon what Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or even anybody else in the nation did. The covenant was conditioned upon God alone. God promised to give great descendants in this covenant to Abraham He promised to bless all nations through these descendants. And he promised to give that nation the literal land of Canaan. At the time, it was the land of Canaan. And we saw Jacob. He was a deceiver, a heel grabber, a supplanter. But God pursued Jacob. God had a plan for his life. And Jacob finally turned to God. If you remember, he finally asked God for help admitting who he was. And that was when a transformation began to take place. Well, we talked a little bit about we too need God's help. Just we need to rely on Him as a shepherd, our shepherd, as a sheep relies upon the shepherd. And the great thing is God wants us. He pursues us. He leads us. He is faithful to us, even though we are truly, in a sense, dumb sheep. But we want to respond that, to that calling, to that faithfulness with dependence, dependence upon the shepherd. Well, we're starting in chapter 37 today of Genesis. You can, you can open your Bibles there and we'll move from there all the way through the end of the book. But let's ask the Lord before we jump in to be, to be with us. God, you are with us. And yet we ask that you would truly open our minds, give us um, focus on the things of your word here this morning. It's a special time to discuss and to look at your revealed word in a a unique way together. I pray that the words that I speak would only be your truth, and we want to know you. We want to fall deeper in love with you. We want to be excited and passionate about who you are and about what you've done through the life of of Joseph, especially this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so chapter thirty-seven of Genesis, we find a thirteen year old a uh, seventeen, excuse me, seventeen year old Joseph, the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. He's now the favored son. And as you parents are probably aware, the favoritism amongst your children is a problem. And here you see it, a problem, generating hate and envy from Joseph's ten older brothers. They hated Joseph deeply. When he shared with them two of the two dreams that God gave him, um, they hated him even more. They used that as, as material for mocking him, treating him terribly. Later, Joseph is sent to check on his brothers. The ten brothers are grazing sheep away from home, and they plot to kill Joseph. That, of course, shows their moral standards. Uh, In that story, you notice that Reuben, he's the firstborn. He actually fights for Joseph's life. The question is, why didn't Reuben demand for Joseph's life? Why didn't he demand a change of of plans? He was the oldest. He should have been the one leading that crew. Later, we find out actually from his father, Jacob, that Reuben's character is wishy-washy. It's something like water. That's an interesting tidbit. It turns out that a caravan of Ishmaelites is passing by the brothers as they have Joseph there. They're referred to as Midianites. If you remember, um, Abraham remarried and Midian was one of the sons. So these are descendants of Abraham's second marriage back a few generations. These Midianites are passing by and Judah, brother Judah, He suggests that they sell Joseph as a slave instead of kill him. How nice. Isn't this just great? We're so good, brothers. We'll sell him instead of kill him. He makes it sound like a noble act. They sold Joseph for about $10. And you wonder what Joseph is thinking as he rides away, perhaps on the back of a camel with his hands shackled as a slave. It wasn't a good start for one who had great dreams of being in leadership. And what of God's plan? Has it been shot full of holes? Well, the brother's hardness of heart is apparent, isn't it? Sin has consequences. This wickedness that they carried out against Joseph, it will never leave them. They will carry that sin, the burden of it, for the rest of their lives. Now they go on, they deceive their old father into believing that a wild animal killed Joseph. They hung on to that deception for 22 years. Jacob was deceived by the blood of goats on the coat of his son Joseph. You remember, Jacob deceived his father by the skin of goats. Not that many years prior to this, Jacob was deeply grieved. And chapter thirty-eight, it changes um, changes topics a little bit. It's placed right. Chapter thirty-eight is placed right in the middle of this narrative about Joseph. It's an odd placement, and it's an odd story. It's a sad story here as you see Judah. Again, extremely low moral standards. He has a set of twin boys through an incestuous relationship. But interestingly enough, one of these twin boys is in the Messianic lineage. Judah, Judah was a rebel, a liar, a deceiver. He messed up big time. But hang on, God's not done with Judah. Well, Chapter 39 Joseph has been taken south now to Egypt as a slave. Um, in the Midianite caravan, you can see a little bit of what the route might have looked like from Upper, what now is upper Israel down into Egypt. But notice in verse 2 of chapter 39, it says, "...the Lord was with Joseph, and he became successful." One wonders if you could define success, or whatever word is used there in your translation... As abiding in the Lord, having God with you, Joseph was sold to Potiphar, captain of the king's guard, and before long he was in charge of all of Potiphar's house. We don't know much about Potiphar's story, but we do know that Joseph resisted evil when it presented presented itself. Joseph refused the advances of Potiphar's wife in that situation. You know, we live in a society, you can look at that story in more detail if you've never read it before, but we live in a society that seems to promote the excitement of sin, and really, who can resist it? Everyone gives in here and there. Well, Joseph lived in an even more pagan society, believe it or not, more corrupt, more immoral, and he resisted the devil. He resisted temptation. In fact, he ran. Now, that wasn't cowardice. Running wasn't cowardice in this situation; it was courage. Second Timothy two two says, "Flee from youthful passions," and you know what happened to Joseph? He went to prison for it. I can't help thinking of the contrasting stories of his ancestors. That's Joseph's ancestors. You remember Jacob and Rachel, Isaac and Rebecca, and others who took things into their own hands. Remember those stories? We looked at them briefly recently here, but. Joseph had a dream from God that destined him for greatness, but he chose purity. He chose uprightness. He didn't take things into his own hands and he ended up in prison. Righteousness is not always immediately rewarded. Sin has immediate pleasure, but righteous standards are not always popular. You wonder what Joseph was asking himself as he goes to prison should i have taken things into my own hands has god forgotten to protect his servant is god playing with me as a cat plays with a mouse there must have been think 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 about the man headed to prison there must have been strong temptation for doubt despair anger bitterness resentment you name it self-pity cynicism it's gone from bad to worse really he was as sold as a slave and he was doing okay, and then he's thrown into an Egyptian prison. And not just thrown in, but unjustly thrown in. Well, Joseph responds, and apparently he didn't sit around feeling bad for himself, waiting to die, or scheming retribution. The warden ends up putting Joseph in charge of the whole place. Four times in chapter 39, it says, The Lord was with Joseph, you remember Psalm one, it talks about that person who chooses God and God's standards and does not choose wicked company. That person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, even while in prison. Well, you can read the, the story in chapter 40 as we move along for yourself. But it turns out that Joseph interprets a couple of dreams for fellow prisoners With the Lord's help, and after two years of unjust incarceration, Joseph, in chapter 41, is summoned to interpret a couple dreams now for Pharaoh, the king. By the way, this interpreting of Pharaoh's dreams is the third major account of dreams in the story of Joseph, which is an interesting tidbit. Well, within a matter of hours, it seems like anyway, for sure a matter of days, Joseph is appointed over all the land of Egypt. Second only, second in command to Pharaoh himself. Talk about a rags to riches moment. He's given power to exact heavy tax from the Egyptians for the next seven years to put into plan, put into motion a plan that he has for storing up food for the following seven years when there will be a great famine. Joseph originally, remember, he had those exhilarating dreams as a teenager. Well, that turned into a 13-year nightmare. Slavery, torn from family, torn from familiarity, accusations, lies, prison. But God was with Joseph. And as a song I recently heard says, you never stop working even when I don't feel you are working. God was at work. It was a 13-year character building boot camp, if you will. He was now ready. God's timing is perfect. David Jeremiah says, problems can make us better if we don't allow them to make us bitter. Joseph became a lifesaver to Egypt and really to the the known world. Well, the seven years of famine hit after the seven years of plenty, and and it hit hard. In chapter 42, we find Jacob and his family still down in Canaan. They're out of food, and Jacob sends his ten boys down to Egypt to buy grain. In Egypt, they bow before the ruler, Joseph, and he recognizes them. It's been over 20 years. They don't know him. Of course, he would have changed physically. He would have looked and spoke like an Egyptian. And Joseph accuses them now of spying. He throws them into prison. It wasn't all that long ago that they threw him into a pit. Remember that? The brothers are still keenly aware of their past actions. It's still on their minds and they talk with one another about that time. And in fear. Was Joseph now being cruel? Was he repaying them for what they had done to him? Well, Joseph keeps brother Simeon in custody as he lets the rest go home with their grain to feed their families, telling them they need to return. When they return, they need to bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, in order to retrieve Simeon. Now, throughout this story, you see Joseph's emotion. Here in chapter 42 at one point, he turned away from the brothers and wept. There's compassion here in the man. Keep an eye on this as we we work our way through the story, and we won't talk about it all that much, but I think the author might be showing us in this emotion of Joseph, he's showing us that he is not simply being vindictive by throwing his brothers into prison or whatever else he's doing, but he needs to know what these men are like, and he's testing them. He's testing them. Well, the famine in the land is severe. Jacob and his family now have run out of food again. In chapter 43, they need to return to Egypt for more food. They need to buy more food. That's the only place you can find it. And I guess brother Simeon wasn't a huge priority. Sorry, he's sitting in prison the whole time. But Jacob, he's dismayed. He's depressed. He's pessimistic at best. But he sends them back with money, with gifts, and with brother Benjamin, hoping for mercy. Joseph's identity is still concealed from them as they come back to Egypt. Joseph is emotional again. He weeps several times during this process this time. And eventually, the brothers head home with more grain, with the returned money in their sack, and this time with Joseph's special silver cup in Benjamin's grain sack. You remember the story most likely. God's not done with these brothers. God's at work in their life too. And and Joseph continues his testing of them. In chapter 44, Joseph follows them as they head north to their home. He finds the cup in Benjamin's bag and then he blames them for stealing. He, he says he wants Benjamin as a slave. The rest are innocent, but notice the test. Was Benjamin a threat to these older brothers? Did they envy and hate him just as they had Joseph? I didn't mention it, but Benjamin's, the, if you remember, the only other full brother that Joseph had, Rachel as their mother. What would they do now? What would these brothers do now knowing that Benjamin was to be a slave in Egypt? Remember what they had done to Joseph? They had sold him as a slave to Egypt. Well, notice their response. Chapter 44, they tore their clothes. That's an action that denotes terror, sorrow, and grief. And they all voluntarily returned to Egypt with Benjamin. As you look at 44, there's a big chunk there, verses 18 through 34, where Brother Judah steps up. Remember Brother Judah? The man who had suggested selling Joseph into slavery and gives at this point a long speech. It's a plea. In this plea, Judah genuinely shows reverence for Joseph's position and power. By the way, he doesn't know who he is still, right? Judah reviewed Joseph's wishes. They had obeyed what he wanted. And he restated the problem, reminding Joseph that their father and his life and his existence was wrapped up in this boy Benjamin. And then Judah finally requests pity with a selfless plan. He says, let him go and let me take his place. Let him go and let me take his place. Is that the same man we saw back there in chapter 38? That terrible chapter that I think part of the reason it's in there, it highlights Judah's ungodliness and sin. Is this the same man that sold... Joseph into slavery? I don't think it is. I think we're seeing a heart change in the brothers and specifically in Judah. Recognition of their past. Repentance from evil. God had been pursuing these guys too. Importantly, we need to note that the dynasty of the nation of Israel, the future dynasty years down the road, which culminated in Jesus' coming, the Messiah, would come through the line of Judah. Now, Judah didn't deserve that, but I think he had a repentant heart. I think Judah had a repentant heart. It does point to the massive importance of repentance, confessing and admitting our sin, and then changing Proverbs 28.13 says, The one who conceals his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them will find mercy. Well, Joseph had controlled his emotions several times to this point, but after the, after the speech of brother Judah, he can't do it anymore. The testing had revealed what he had hoped to see in his brothers, I'm sure he sends everyone out of the room. That's the passage that Scott read for us. All the Egyptian attendants left. He wasn't afraid of his brothers, and he opens his mouth for the first time in the Hebrew tongue and reveals himself to just them. I don't think any one of them expected that to happen. Imagine their terror. Though change may have been real, The picture of a frantic, scared, helpless young brother being sold as a slave, riding forever away. That was the last time they saw him. That must have been burned in their minds. They're still so terrified they can't respond. They don't have any words. It's their turn to feel deep sorrow and pain and even terror. But check out Joseph's attitude. He doesn't justify their evil. He doesn't minimize it or say, oh, it's okay, it wasn't that big a deal. But there's no rebuke. Instead, he consoles them and he points to God's purpose through it all. Don't be upset, brothers. God sent me ahead of you to preserve life by a great deliverance is what he calls it. And then he wept. He embraced every one of them. He kissed every one of them and they talked together. So what are you seeing there? I think we're seeing something, we could call it complete and prior forgiveness. Complete and prior forgiveness. Joseph had already forgiven his brothers. In chapter 46, Jacob, Father Jacob is revived knowing that Joseph is still alive after 22 years thinking he was dead. Jacob offers sacrifices to God, the God of his fathers, the one and only God, and they all go down to Egypt, the whole family. We're seeing further definition as this takes place, further definition of the plan of God. That plan of redemption is slowly unfolding as we go through the Old Testament. So this tiny nation of Israel at this point is about 75 people or so as far as we can see. The family settles in Goshen. You see that in chapter 47. The Israelites are safe. They have plenty of food. And they begin to multiply in the land of Egypt. Well, finally, Jacob, he's near death in chapter 48. You can look look at verse 4. At this point, Jacob repeats the Abrahamic covenant. He's talking to Joseph. He recalls when God had appeared to him at Bethel. You remember that? And God, and he repeats what God says I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will give the land to your descendants. Jacob, it's an interesting passage. We don't have time to get into it too much, but Jacob claims Joseph's two boys as his own. He says, These are my boys. And he blesses them, and those two boys became huge tribes in the nation, the future nation of Israel. Verse 15 and 16. If you think about Jacob as we looked at him last week and the progression of who he is, look at verse 15 and 16. It shows Jacob looking back in gratitude, even though he had some serious depravity, some circumstantial hardship. And he says, God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. God was faithful to him. Well, most of chapter 49, as we come to the end of the book, most of chapter 49 is devoted to Father Jacob blessing and really prophesying over his twelve sons. And you can look at those later. There's some, it'd be interesting to study out every one. You can note Judah in specific. There's um, great prophetic detail here in Judah's prophecy from his father talking about royalty coming through Judah's line. Specifically one who will bring peace. Remember the lion of the tribe of Judah mentioned in Revelation? That's him. That's another segment now of the redemptive plan of God going Forward As we look toward the Messiah one day. Well, finally, that last chapter, chapter 50 in Genesis, wraps up now with Joseph showing compassion to his brothers again. They're still worried. Jacob has died and they're afraid of Joseph. But Joseph wept again because of the guilt that his brothers still carried. It still affected them. Hatred. Seems to harm the hater more than the hated. Joseph had fully forgiven, but they were still afraid of his vengeance. But look at Joseph's words. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about his present result to preserve many people. Well, as we think about this passage and, and we're, we're trying to follow the greater plan of God, God sent Joseph to save not only that little bitty nation of Israel that has now been brought to Egypt, but I think you never know what would have happened to the whole world had not God sent Joseph to Egypt. So at this point, Egypt became the protector. Egypt became the incubator, if you will, of this little nation of Israel. I think that's why they had to go to Egypt. They were physically protected against enemies who wouldn't have wanted to compete with a growing family tribe. They were even potentially morally protected to some degree from the wicked Canaanites and racially protected as the Egyptians didn't want to intermarry. They didn't want to integrate with them at all. In fact, they were a little bit removed in the land of Goshen. God was moving against opposition. He was protecting, showing His power and His purpose now as He brings this nation to Egypt. He's keeping His covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Isaac, and the covenant with Jacob. Well, there's a lot of topics in this story that could be explored, and and I hope you have the time to read through there. They're exciting and detailed You wonder why Moses put in some details and left out others, but there's a purpose for it, I'm sure, for all of it. But Joseph is a prime example of forgiveness. Joseph forgave. You know, he'd been deeply wronged, hadn't he, by his own brothers. It was unjust. It was unfair. It was evil. I don't know. I'm going to venture to say that few of us have been wronged as deeply as Joseph. But the principles still stand. Forgiveness. We each need to forgive. We've all been wronged. We've all been taken advantage of, misrepresented, and overlooked, and you name it. What What's happened to you? On and on it can go. We all need to forgive. But why? Why should we forgive? You can ask that question. Why should we forgive? There's a couple things I'll mention in answer to that question. By the way, this is a huge topic, and I'm just going to throw out a few things that can help us this morning. In our need to forgive, you can explore it further. The first reason we need to forgive is that we have been forgiven. Colossians 3, 12-13 says, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, that's us, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. You know, you remember we rebelled against God. We turned away from God. We sealed our fate an eternity away from Him in that rebellion part of salvation part of being saved as a christian is forgiveness god forgave your sins god forgave our sin psalm 103 verse 12 as far as the east is from the west so far has he removed your transgressions from you from me We have been greatly forgiven. Now you can ponder that. How far is the east from the west? They're removed. I think in answer to that question, we should also forgive because we were not designed to hold wrongs in our heart. Without forgiveness, we get wrapped up in ourselves. We become angry and eventually bitter. Without forgiving, it taints our whole person, our whole worldview. It's like dropping a little drop of pigment into a big can of white paint. What happens to that white paint? It's not white anymore. Sometimes it turns black. Just with a few drops, it taints your whole worldview. If we don't let go, if we don't forgive, we are bound. We have shackles on our wrists by what someone else did to us. Hatred hurts the hater more than the hated. We forgive because we weren't designed to hold wrongs in our heart. They damage us. We were designed for freedom. And even if we don't understand, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense, we believe God and His Word and we forgive. I think part of faith in God as a Christian is forgiving. Joseph seemed to have great faith in God through all circumstances. He bowed to God's sovereignty regardless of what happened to him. He was very conscious as of God as his authority. Remember Joseph's attitude toward God? He said some things like this. He said, How can I sin against God? He said, I can't reveal your dreams to you, but God can. He said to his brothers, don't be afraid, brothers. Am I in the place of God to pass judgment upon you? And then there in chapter 50, God had a plan for it all. You meant it for evil, but he meant it for good. So do you see the faith motivating Joseph's forgiveness? It wasn't really about him after all. God will work it out all for good. For those who love him, for those who trust him. Many of you know the story of <clears throat> Corey Ten Boom, but I just when you come to forgiveness, it's it's a hard one to avoid. So I'm gonna tell it to you again, at least in part. There's there's a little more to it. You can look it up online, but this is what she says. It was in a church. In Munich, that I saw him. A balding, heavy set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany with the message that God forgives. When we confess our sins, I said, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. Afterward is when I saw him. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, the huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. My sister Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me. hand extended toward me. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocket rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, would he? But I remembered him. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear from your lips as well, Furline. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And as I stood there, I whose sins had every day been forgiven and could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do, for I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition that we forgive those who have injured us. Jesus said, if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were also able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter what the physical scars were. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I still stood there with coldness, clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me, And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did right then. Well, what, what exactly is forgiveness? What exactly is forgiveness? There's a lot to this. The foundation, as, as we have just said, is faith in God. Joseph had forgiven his brothers long before they showed up in Egypt. He believed God. Corrie Ten Boom had based her forgiveness on faith in God. Here's here's three points to help us think about what forgiveness is and help us in our situations. I think, first, forgiveness is forgetting. Joseph's first son, he named Manasseh. The meaning there conveys that God helped Joseph forget his past troubles. Philippians 3, verse 13 says, Brothers and sisters, this is Paul speaking to the church, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of the goal yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly calling. Maybe you need to forget some things that you've done. Trusting God for His forgiveness. Maybe you need to forget some things that were done to you trusting god don't set a reminder on your phone take the string off of your finger and forget now i don't mean that you will never be cognitively aware of that wrong again that you somehow have to force yourself never to remember but it's as if the f- the offense as if the sin has been fully forgotten what is forgiveness The second thing is forgiveness is letting go, letting go of control. You know, if you're a sailor and you're hanging onto a rope attached to the the sail in hurricane force winds, there might come a time when you need to let go of that rope or it will throw you into the sea. Yes, you're trying to control the ship. You're trying to right the ship. But if you don't let go, it's not going to turn out well. Sure, you've been wronged. Forgiveness doesn't mean you minimize what has happened to you. Joseph had every reason to control, to try to coerce, to take revenge. But instead, he asks that rhetorical question, Am I in the place of God? Are you in the place of God? Is it our place to control? I think forgiveness lets go. It refuses vengeance. It refuses coercion. It refuses continued resentment. We choose to let go. God will take care of them. Third, as we think about this, forgiveness is canceling a debt. Say you loan someone $1,000 and they don't pay it back in the agreed-upon time well, you have some options there. How do you get your money back? How do you get repaid? You can take action against them to motivate them. You can build resentment in your, your, your person, and your soul. Or you could choose to cancel the debt. Suddenly, they don't owe you anything. Forgiveness is, is I think, often a little bit like that. In other words, it's, it's unilateral, meaning... You by yourself can offer forgiveness regardless of the attitude of the offender. You by yourself can offer forgiveness. You can forgive within your own heart regardless of the attitude of the one who offended you. They didn't pay you back. They're not going to pay you back. They didn't ask for forgiveness, but you chose to cancel. I don't think Corey Ten Boom didn't have to wait for the guard to ask forgiveness in order to have that moment. Forgiveness is like canceling a debt. So as I said, there's much more to this topic, and you can spend time digging it out, but for your own sake, for each of our own sake, take a moment and reflect. Is there somebody you need to forgive? Have you forgiven him? Have you forgiven her? Have you forgiven them? Ask God for help. You're going to need it. And forgive. You can forgive me because I think I've gone over time. Next week we'll be in the first half, Lord willing, of Exodus. Probably go through chapters 1 through 15. Let's ask the Lord as we go from here. Scott, if you and the team would come up. Father, thank you for this opportunity to see such a prime example of forgiveness in Joseph. There's a lot of things we can look at there, but I'm grateful for Joseph's example. With your help, able to completely forgive. Even before his brothers pled for forgiveness, he forgave. And I don't know, God, I know there's things in my life that I, I don't want, really want to let go of. I don't really want to forgive. It's easier to think about them and be resentful and angry or whatever it is. And I pray, God, that You would help us drudge those things up and truly forgive. And I'm, I'm thankful that You are with us and that You help us forgive. And we can do that because You forgave us a greater debt than we will ever have to forgive someone else. And I, I just pray for strength and focus as we walk through forgiveness and as we, we, we do it in hope too, God that you will provide freedom and joy and relationship betterment on the other side of forgiveness. We know that will be the case in hope and in faith in you. Be with each one as we reflect. Where in our life can we forgive? We want to do it. We just pray it in Jesus' name now.